as we feed our souls from the Word of God, and, and it, you know, we may not be consistent every morning. I understand that. I kind of go through seasons myself. Uh, we should be able to take that and feed our family and proclaim the Word of God to those around us. As we feed our souls, we should have enough left over to be able to do that. I had preached a couple of sermons on the Old Testament, and what I want to do is continue that theme of seeing God's grace from the Old Testament. I think it's so rich and so beautiful. It presents such an unfolding picture. If you have the big picture of the Old Testament, of course, the uh, apostles, that's what they had. When you read Paul's letters, you see that he was immersed in the understanding. His understanding of grace, of course, came through Christ, but it was built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. And so what I want to do this morning is uh, open up to you the Word of God and give you a glimpse, another glimpse of God's amazing grace from the Old Testament. Let us open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to see the wondrous things from your Word. And Lord, help us to see the gospel, help us to see Christ in all his glory, in all his beauty, the one who ushered in the new covenant by his blood. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. And so what I wanted to do, actually this, I had been thinking about this, this was again part of my my reading as I had been reading in the Old Testament. And I think that the grace, the idea of grace is best understood in the context of the Old Testament and how it's used. The Old Testament Hebrew word for grace is the word chen. Um, And the New New Testament Greek word is charis. And that is what is translated into English grace. And many of the newer translations translate that word, that Old Testament word chen, into favor or to be pleased with and as I read through the Old Testament and I think of my own life I think of our situation here at Christ the King what does our heart yearn for what do we yearn for and I think we yearn for two things we yearn for the presence of God the genuine real presence of God in our life and we yearn like the people of Israel we yearn for a place a place we can call our own. So what I want to do is I want to focus on this word, Chen, from the Old Testament. It occurs 60 times. And while many of those occurrences are in the context of man finding favor with man, there are more than a few that deal with God showing grace or favor to man. So, Uh, Of course, it helps to look at the context wherever it's referenced. So the first time that word or that concept appears in the Old Testament is with regard to Noah. In Genesis 6-8, it says, But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, this is set in stark contrast to Genesis 5-7, through where God had declared or pronounce judgment on all of mankind. 
The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's often said that Noah is a type of Christ in this example of both judgment and salvation uh, for a select few or remnant. And although the scriptures do not make it abundantly clear that the favor that Noah found in the eyes of the Lord was undeserved, I think it would be safe to say that there was nothing in Noah himself that made him particularly favorable to God, as we can look in our own lives and and come to that same conclusion. So I think also Noah here is a picture of Christ because we know from both the Old and New Testament that the Lord, who is he ultimately pleased with? Well, we know from Matthew 3.17, he says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so it is in Christ that God is ultimately and completely pleased. And, of course, from whom Christ, from whom God's grace and truth comes. So in Noah's case, the rest of the family obviously benefited from the fact that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I also think it's interesting to note that this also shows a pattern and precedence of God's salvation. His favor that seems to always be directed uh, only towards a select few or a a remnant. Uh, We can see... Paul, when he quotes Isaiah in that famous chapter 9 of Romans, where he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Romans 9.27, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And he goes on to say, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So in the New Testament, this idea of judgment, of salvation and judgment, seems to come out very clear uh, in John's proclamation, John the Baptist's proclamation, where he says, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with Holy Spirit. And fire, and uh, I actually remember somebody kind of misquoting this, saying, "Yeah, I want to be baptized with fire." I thought, "I don't think you want to be baptized with fire. I want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not with fire." And so, the passage that I chose for this topic of grace is found in Exodus 33, because I think that is a beautiful picture of God's grace in dealing. Uh, with Moses. So, um, hear the word of God. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so I apologize if it's a little different from the Pew Bible. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. 
because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off all your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses, verse 7, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go into the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and, I ha- and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. The word of the Lord. So in the short space of six verses, it is Moses is said to have found chen or grace or favor, or to be pleased with. And of course, this chapter, chapter 33, follows the golden calf. 
um, that wild party that occurred after Moses tarried too long on the mountain. Needless to say, the Lord was not at all pleased with his people going into chapter 33. In chapter 33, the Lord directs Moses to take the people to the promised land. But I think it's interesting that he announces that he would not go with them. I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people to the land flowing with milk and honey because I might destroy you along the way. This is followed, of course, by a lengthy discourse between the Lord and between Moses where the Lord speaks to Moses, such a beautiful passage, face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And so their conversation is all about God's grace or favor that he has found and promises to show to Moses. And if you recall the conversation the Lord had with Moses at the burning bush, where Moses asks pretty much the same question, who will go with me? Who will go with me to Egypt? And, and, the Lord, and Moses asked very much the same question. Who will go with us into Canaan? Moses asked the Lord, who will go with him, Moses, to lead the people into the land of promise? This time the Lord responds with a statement in verse 14 that really, I think, is the essence of grace. I don't know of a better definition of grace than this passage where he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And so I think that is, that is what we yearn for, our heart's desire. It's my heart's desire is the presence of God. And I've seen the presence of God even before I knew him. And the, of course, the sovereignty of God. He goes on in verse 17 in response to Moses' specific question by saying, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you. I know you by name. And I think again, just as Noah is a picture and type of Christ, so is Moses a type and picture of our Messiah. The Lord announces that his grace, his favor, which also includes his mercy, uh, because he shows mercy on, on his people for their sin, has everything to do with his sovereign choice in verse 19, doesn't it? Uh, most, most, most people are very familiar with the uh, Romans 19 and the passage where he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Not a lot of folks remember where that comes from. And the context of where that passage comes from in Exodus uh, 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Of course, uh, this is at the central theme of Paul's letter in Romans 9 when he is talking about God's sovereignty. The Old Testament examples of grace go on and on. Um, from Gideon to Samuel and David. David recognizes that uh, the unmerited favor of God has to do with God's choice and not his own. 
Grace in the Old Testament is just as much an act of God's sovereign will as it is in the New Testament. And I think we, we would do well to really see that. We see that also in, of course, the beautiful passages that refer to the New Covenant that are encapsulated in the Old Testament in, within the Old Covenant. There are also examples from the prophets of God bestowing His gracious favor, His, His good grace uh, in times of great disobedience and idolatry to Israel by not destroying them, but by leaving them a remnant. I think that's very interesting. Of course, the beautiful, beautiful passage that, uh, that I was privileged to, to preach on was the New Covenant out of uh, Jeremiah 31, which not only mentioned the people finding favor in Genesis 30 uh, Jeremiah 31 2 this is what the Lord says the people who survived the sword will find favor in the wilderness I will come to give rest to Israel Uh, but of course the promise of grace are found so beautifully in the details of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 Uh, the details of that plan of grace I mentioned before we love to put uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, 10 on birthday cards and graduation cards. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Um, And so those plans are plans of grace that he lays out in that chapter. Uh, In the new covenant, in what the Lord does with his unfaithful wife, with this stiff-necked people, uh, which I'm sure we can relate to, I know I do, who are capable only of one thing, and that is idolatry and profaning his holy name. Of course, his grace is undeserved. It's unearned. It's uh, very uh, scandalous when you think about his grace. And uh, I'd like to kind of revisit that for you this morning in Jeremiah 31, where he says, verse 31 through 34, He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. This is in stark contrast to Jeremiah 17 where the Lord said to his people, this is what's written on your heart of stone and it's chiseled with an iron or flint knife. What's written on your heart is sin. And so when you see the contrast from Jeremiah 17 to Jeremiah 31 where he says, I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
I think the, one of the best examples uh, ex, or expressions or definitions of grace is, as I mentioned, summed up as the Lord's, God's presence and rest. Which, of course, can only be found in Christ. I think of that passage where he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And He is pleased. He's pleased with us. I think that's that's very restful, isn't it? When you come to the realization that I don't have to perform for God to be pleased with me. Your Father is pleased with you. He's pleased with you in your obedience. He's pleased with you in your repentance. He's pleased with you. I think of my own children. I'm pleased with them, no matter what they do. I may not always... Respect their decisions. I'm, I'm pleased with them. And I rejoice when I, when I watch my children. And I think that our, our Father does the same. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are pleased with us. We thank You for the promise to be with us and to give us rest. Our souls yearn for rest. Rest from work. Rest from trying to be good. Rest from good works. Rest from our own righteousness. Lord, we thank You and we praise Your holy name for the promise of rest and the promise of a place. Father, we yearn for a place we could call our own because it's a picture that Someday we will have a place with you. Lord Jesus, you said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Lord, we yearn for that. Our hearts yearn for that. We ask and pray that you would be honored and glorified in all things. For we pray in the magnificent name of Christ. Amen.